Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is someone I am so excited to be in the company of for the next hour. She's an icon, a musical maverick, a game changer, an activist from childhood who spent the last 25 years shattering and redefining preconceptions about race, gender and sexuality, all while selling millions of records around the world as the front woman of Skunk and Nancy. She's just released her memoir, It Takes Blood and Guts, which eloquently documents her difficult childhood as Deborah Ann Dyer, growing up in Brixton before going on to form Skunk and Nancy in the 90s, where she became known as Skin, one of the most influential women in rock, seeing a duet with Pavarotti in front of the Dalai Lama, singing Happy Birthday to Nelson Mandela, and becoming the first black Brit to headline Glastonbury in 1999. Her book is full of inspiring tales of a young, black, working-class girl growing up in relative poverty who was determined to grow up to be a social and cultural activist championing LGBTQ rights at a time when few artists were out and gay. Now, 53, she's about to get married for the second time and divides her time between Ibiza, London and New York. So let's dial up Skin. Oh my god! Honestly, by the end of this, we're going to have IT degrees. You know the you know the meme going around at the moment. Customers <laughs> going to retrain to be working in cyber. We already are. We already are. What I found in lockdown skin is if you embrace the tech and try not to be yeah. scared of it, then actually it enhances your world. And if you're doing radio, you're going to need all of this stuff. Brilliant, by the way. Paul Sylvester has hired you in to come and work at Absolute. The man has implicitly good taste in broadcasters. Uh, and you're doing 10 eps, aren't you? Yes, I'm doing, yeah. I start with 10, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I can't absolutely. believe Actually, when I read that, and I was like, yeah, why is Skin already not doing her own show somewhere? <laughs> like, why are you not all over Six Music? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just, I love the idea. I've wanted to do a radio show. I've been out to do radio shows before, but it's been in ways that I couldn't do it. Um, mm -hmm. I was out to do uh, Virgin Radio in Italy. And I just, time-wise, I just couldn't do it. You know, I just couldn't work it out. But I love it. I love the whole idea. I've always loved radio. I love playing music. I love chatting to people. I just love chatting. <laughs> You're so great. You are, I mean, you and I both, we sat on telly for two hours talking about everything um, last year, I think it was, Jeremy Vine. Yeah. And I was, everything, I never ceased to be amazed and surprised by you. And I got off, so, so we met last year and then I got off the tube a couple of um, weeks back and I was walking up Cold Harbour Lane. Yeah. And there was this massive billboard with your face on it advertising <laughs> Your um, autobiography, which is an incredible read, it Thank takes you, blood and guts, and I and and it was I now I understand the pertinence of that billboard because Brixton was your home, is your home, I guess, in yeah. so many ways, the place you call home, and there you were. I mean, literally the side of two bus sizes, you know, it's like huge. <laughs> and it, it's, and, and, and it actually the wording had been changed. Brixton girl is what it said on there. I was like, yes, skin. <laughs> got straight on the phone to the publishers, went, right, we've got to do a podcast. And you said, yes. So thank you so much. 
It's my pleasure, my pleasure. I never got to see it. I'm heartbroken. Everyone got to see joking. it. Yeah, do you know, I was in, um, I've got a house in Ibiza. I've, I've had a house there for 14 years. And I was there for the, my second half of lockdown. And of course, I got back to London and you're not allowed to go anywhere. So I, I have, I've just been in my house and now I think it's over. I think I've missed it. I think the billboards are gone. Because they, they yeah. only do it the first two or three weeks, don't they? But yeah, I, I was born and bred in Brixton, born and raised in Brixton. Um, I lived in army bases till I was about five. Um, but I was also coming back to Brixton because of my granddad's nightclub. So when we come visit my granddad, I would go down to Effa Road, 30 Effa Road and hang out there with them. But as, as I'm reading your book, and literally I've been that crazy lady that's got, I've got it on my Kindle and I've got the hard copy. And I've been on trains, I've been on buses, I've been on tubes reading it. I walk into walls because I can't stop reading when I get off at my stop. <laughs> it's It takes you there. And what a bloody story. But you know, when it was first mentioned to me, and I, I've written it with my great friend, Lucy O'Brien, when it was first mentioned to me, my reaction was kind of like, I haven't done anything. I've just been in a band and tour. I mean, I haven't done anything. And I, I basically blanked her for like three months. I was like, I'm not answering her. She's going to want me to write a book. And then the more I thought, <laughs> <laughs> and the more I, the more I thought about it, and then there were all these books coming out about Britpop, 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 and I was like, Do you know, there's something else to say about what was going on in the '90s. It wasn't just Britpop, of it course. Wasn't. Britpop was massive, massive, but there were so many other things going on at the same time. You know, there was Bjork, there was uh, Goldie, there was R&B black girl groups, there was drum and bass, there was trip hop. And, and I felt a bit like, you know, I think this is a good time to tell an alternate story. It's a good time to kind of like say, say what was happening from someone who probably at the time, well, definitely at the time, wasn't really included in it and felt very outside of it um, and felt that that was quite a deliberate move. So I thought, well, let's tell like an alternate, an alternate story and just put the book in context of what was happening in London around the time because right. that was very important to me because certain pub I had a few publishing offers and one of them, which was one of the big ones, was like, yeah, we just want to do it from your perspective only. And I was like, no, 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 it has to be, um, it has to be from mine and someone else's so we can place it in time in history. So then it has context and context is vital. So um, that was one of the things that we wanted to really kind of push in a book like, you know, there are other stories um, and those stories are just as vital as the Britpop story. Not that I hate Britpop, I love Britpop. You know, but, but no, but you're quite right because what I get from reading the book, I've always considered you, by the way, to be a vital part of that scene. So the fact that you felt airbrushed is 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 really upsetting, because for me, this story is told through the eyes of somebody that had a ringside seat across that 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 musical kind of movement and that yeah. time. But also, you're quite right. Your book. Every step of the way, every page you turn, there is another chapter of social history that has not been reported. And yeah. we're seeing this now with so much, you know, we're talking to you in, in the month of, of black history. I mean, why it has yeah. to be a month yeah. and it shouldn't go across the year still makes me scratch my head. But the fact is so much goes unreported and we're learning more and more now. And this is very much your story. And you've and I know that you felt that at times because you didn't fit what the establishment wanted the, the the scene to look like at that time. Well, they just kind of not erased you, just opted to not include you. And that's yeah. so wrong because you were breaking records, making records and changing rules every time you went out and you raised your voice and and you continue to do that and I applaud you and thank you for that. Well you know I think that what there was this very strong sense of at the time of like I would be in situations all the time where I knew that people didn't get me and people didn't understand me um, and so I think that from the other side of it if I was empathetic to how they were seeing me I think that's quite especially big male egos that's quite a valuable mm. thing to do you've got something in front of you that you don't understand and you have the power so it's actually easier to ignore it and to pretend it doesn't exist because then you lose that feeling of in, uh, uncomfortability and vulnerability and you have all the power and you feel good again. Um, and I think that that's what happened a lot. Um, people kind of like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, they sold millions of records, but I just don't like her voice because they couldn't say we weren't good. They couldn't say we weren't popular. They couldn't say we didn't write great songs. So they just kind of didn't write about us because they didn't know how to write about us. Um, and I, I definitely feel that uncomfortability just kept coming back and coming 
back. I've been doing a lot of interviews for this book. And uh, yesterday someone said to me, um, yeah, you know, well, you were a bit weird and you were aggressive and you were a bit like this and that. And I was like, no, 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 I wasn't. That's just how you felt because you didn't know anybody like me and I wasn't represented and you didn't know what to do with me. Mm. So you kind of just jumped into the same cliches that other people jump into. Um about, you know, they'll see black youth on the street. They think that person's going to be dangerous or whatever, whatever. But that's not about them. It's about you projecting yeah. what you feel about it. So yeah. I think that there was a lot of that. And as a consequence, the amount of people that didn't even know we had Lyme Glastonbury, um, I did uh, Lovey Fern Cotton and I was reading some of the, I did her Happy Place podcast and I love that yeah. one. She's amazing. And some of the comments were like, oh, I thought she wasn't doing music anymore. And, and that's what happens if you're not talked about. People just think you've just stopped or you're not doing anything. Well, you step outside of the UK and we play up to 20,000 people a yeah. night. You know, because we're still massive in other countries. But in England, it's like, it's Janet Jackson. It's like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the Glastonbury thing, right, that goes exactly back to the case in point we were just discussing. So yeah. you were the first black British artist, regardless of gender, to headline Glastonbury in 1999. Prodigy were 1997 and we were um, 1999. So, I mean, again, you know, the Prodigy, Maxim, Leroy. Leroy. Another, yeah, I mean, an amazing, massive, massive group, but nobody really talks about the fact that they were the first two black people to headline Glastonbury. I was the first woman. So yeah. I can, I Sorry, can, my I, apologies. I, I, can yeah. I can pack that, but, and it's kind of like, then there was nobody really till Stormzy. That's a 20 year gap. You know, well, um, there was. I, I mean, think... there was there was Beyonce, and it was like, oh, first black woman oh. to headline Glastonbury, and that that actually that would have been you. Yeah, we're talking about British people. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, and I, I was that's when when Beyonce said that because I'm like, well, everybody must know that I she was interviewed by the same people that interviewed me when I walked off stage in 1999, um, and I I think it's more about the fact that. Um, you know, as we're not seen as headliners, you know, all across Europe, that week was the same. It's connected with the first band, Pogedy were the first band, you know. Um, and those, we were the, the rare occasions when Black British music was headlining massive festivals all across Europe. Um, but being black wasn't really an issue. It wasn't something that I talked about. It was kind of like, oh yeah, let's, that feels, that feels uncomfortable. Let's not talk about that. And I would say it's only literally been this year that I can sit here in a mainstream interview and talk about being black and talk about black issues and talk about Glastonbury and talk about that because of the, the remit and the voice that has come out of Black Lives Matter. And I think that's a really good thing, you know, um, and I'm happy about it. I think, um, you know, we're getting there in the end um, to most people and with some other people, you know, I feel there's a definite rise in the right wing around the world. But um, yeah. I think that's what, what, that, that's what makes our, our music amazing is the diversity of it. Well, just the very name Skunk and Nancy. Well, exactly. And the reason why we called it a skunk is because not only is the animal black and white, but it's the stinkiest one. It's the one that not even the tiger or a lion will go near it. It's this tiny little creature that everyone's so scared of getting smelly that they just stay away from it. And it becomes, it's empowered by its stink. A lot, to be honest, a lot of people think it's all about weed. <laughs> you know. And <laughs> Do I, they? Yeah, a lot of people and think, that oh, didn't guys. occur to me. That's funny. A lot of people think, oh, they're just a bunch of weed smokers, especially in the beginning. But I've never smoked a spliff in my life. I don't smoke at all. Um, um, but, you know, that's you know, that's OK. That's cool. I don't mind that. But, um, yeah, I, we did it. I, I called them the band Skunk and Etsy because everybody was calling themselves these like four letter words or five letter words. Oasis, Blur, Elastica, Echo Belly or whatever. These short, sharp words. Keep it simple. Keep it. And I was just like, I remember seeing... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in an interview, and he said, someone said to him, why don't you, why, why did you keep the name Schwarzenegger? It's quite difficult for people to learn. And he said, um, yes, that's exactly why, because it's so hard for you to, I can't do this accent. It's so hard, to, <laughs> it's so hard for you to learn it that once you've learned it, you will never forget it. And I was just like, ping, that's great. And that's why we had such a complicated name. It kind of redefined us as being away from all of the Britpop as well, because they had all very similar type of names. But that is what I got from your book from the moment I started reading it, is that everything has been difficult in so many ways, but you do not let people shut doors in your face. You kick them open and you do it with eloquence and intelligence. And I'm 
I'm, I'm so inspired by that. And I've never had to walk that difficult path. I've faced sexism in, in, my, in the workplace. But that, that's nothing on a par with, you know, what you guys, um, as both as a band and you as a front woman, had to, I mean, it must be exhausting constantly having to keep your paws well, up. I kind of disagree with you. I don't think it's nothing. I think it's really relative. And I think that's the important thing. And I think that we've got to not put things up against each other and think that this is more difficult than that. You know, it's like, yes, things are. Then I think you get into this thing where we start to separate ourselves and we start to polarize and we actually don't realize that, you know, whether we're gay, black, female, you know, we're all actually on the same war path to get heard yeah. and get the same equality and the same rights. Well, it's just equality, well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have to be honest, it's kind of fun to do, to try and see what you can do and to challenge. Um, and I think it was just early on, in my, I talk about it in the book, early on in my career when things became difficult for me, it, how are you going to get over that difficulty? What am I going to do? That's the fun in it. And that's why um, I think I chose a career that was quite difficult as opposed to being an interior designer, which is the path that I was on the way to being. Um, and that's exciting to me. I think it's exciting to, I think it's exciting to be the first and not the second. <laughs> Always. Because yeah. you are effectively a Roman, right? You're building your own roads out. Yeah. And, and I love that. And I love um, that I've created a life where I wake up every day and it's like, what's, what, what's, what's today going to be like? What's the fresh new challenge? Um, and there's a lot of failure in that. There's a lot of mistakes and there's a lot of failure in that. Um, but then there's also fun and I always kind of feel that it's worth it. But I had to find my way to rock music because nobody handed me a guitar at five years old and said, play that love. And nobody played me a Beatles record at 10 and said, why do you like this and get into this? I had to find these things and go and search for them because my community was um, was black music and was R&B and was reggae and was all black people. And my mum was very, very Christian. So I had the added weight of trying to be a good Christian girl. Yeah, which really did weigh heavy on you, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's not that I'm irreligious or anything like that, but I think there's a lot of pressure that comes not from being... Um, religious but comes from people wanting you to be religious in their way you yeah. know um and I was just not feeling it <laughs> I was not feeling it I was like it I'm, it doesn't some of it just did not make sense to me and some of it make complete sense because really it's all about being a good human being a good person that's what religions are supposed to do a way of controlling the masses and making sure the masses are good people but then once you get all that power people go crazy with it and that's where you get all the distortions of religion and all the distortions of the rules and the distortions of what actually um, identifies as a good person so I had all those questions and I had to leave it and I had to I had to leave Brixham and I had to leave everything and just go and be a new person with a new bunch of people and find myself. And actually, to put yourself in the world of rock music, you, you kind of are the Rome. I, I mean, I, I was I watched a documentary recently about a Roman emperor called Septimus Severus. Do you ah. know this guy? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was he was prolific. He was a warrior. He had a huge part to play in, in what the Romans did here in the UK. Mm. And what was never really reported or acknowledged is the fact that he was a man of colour. He was black. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, the, when the Romans came for the first time, they actually brought off um, lots of people of colour. They had the Moors and they had a lot of North Africans. Yeah. And so, actually, uh, there was a huge amount of black people that were here um, and they weren't slaves. This is the most important no. thing. They weren't slaves. So there was actually, we were kind of here before everybody else. <laughs> before the current royal family, you had black people in England. So, yeah. <laughs> and you were informing systems, shaping the way the country, to this day, we use yeah. Roman sewers <laughs> to, to, you know, uh, yeah. we heat our homes because the Romans taught us how to do that. And he and, and they, and they you know, were a huge part of that. But it's unreported and that is outrageous. Because I think that, pe that, the, that people want to keep the glory so it's not a story they want to tell, you know. Um, so and, I think, and I think it's also people in retrospect have changed the dialogue and changed the story and have whitewashed mm. it in retrospect because I think those Tory stories were told at the time, otherwise we wouldn't even have heard of these people. Mm. So um, I, I was, I, I'm glad you know about that. But you're the first person to actually come and tell me about that because, um, I mean, I didn't think, you know, many people knew about, about him and what was happening back in that day. So well, that's, I, that's amazing. It's, but it's important and, it's, and, and we talk about distortion with religion. That's distortion of history and it's mm. unfair. 
it's unfair oh. because it writes people out of our history and then they don't feel a sense of being seen. And that is that is so wrong. And I hope that yeah. the school's curriculum changes the way that history is taught to our children. Good exactly. I mean, you know, the thing is, it's it happens because it's effective. It happens because it works. You know, um, if distorting. you want to gain power, yeah. I mean, like you know, back in the in the back in the back in the day, like it was last week. But you know, <laughs> thinking about Egyptian times and you think about Greek times, when a conquering um, army came, the first thing they would do is trash the library and trash the history and get rid of any recognition and uh, of who that they who the, of the people that they just conquered. So they would smash all of the walls, all of the inscriptions on the walls. They would destroy it because they literally didn't want that civilization to be looked at um, afterwards and seem to exist. So that's why we've lost so many. That's why we don't know how the the, the um, Egyptians built the pyramids because the information was destroyed. Um, Whitewashed. Yeah, abolished and destroyed because that's how you conquer. You wipe out everything of that previous civilization. At the same, at the same time I was reading your book, I was watching this documentary um, about how un unrepresented um, black people are in terms of our British history and it yeah. got me angry so books like yours really help to correct that, yes. that narrative I mean I was just talking about what happened to me and a lot of the narrative really started from trying to Lucy and I trying to really explain to people why the songs are written what was this song about what was that song about um, and that inspired and reminded me of so many different stories and we kept, they kept coming and coming I even got a great story that I wrote but it was too late to actually make the book um, and and this sort of thing, it's like when you actually break down what, when I actually broke down what Week As I was about, for instance, it was about um, this abusive boyfriend I had when I was 16 and he was 29. Um, and it was there's this whole story in the book about how... Um, he is a shit, by the way. He is a horrible... <laughs> I hate that man. I hate that man for you. What he did to you and what you did back was brilliant, but what he did to you was, was abhorrent. Well, it's, I think what's more important is what he could have done to me if I'd have stayed. Mm. I mean, you, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have existed in the same kind of um, same format that I am now. Um, I wouldn't have ex existed in the same way. I wouldn't be the same person. I wouldn't have been in a band. I'd be sitting here with eight kids. Um, and he Subservient. Yeah, I would have been a different person. And I think these are the things that change you in a character. And these are the things that help you break out of your shell. Because I was very shy and quiet, which is why... Yeah he was able to dominate me. But then that relationship, I, you know, I don't regret it at all because that relationship gave me a choice in life. You know, that was my crossroads. That was my, um, that was the start of me being myself and being skin and being in a rock band. And if I hadn't had that happen, who knows what would have happened? What would I have done? And, and you literally write uh, pretty much that it can it, it it defined you and not in a negative way you taught you, you turned it and reframed it so that it gave you a voice and it gave you a determination to fight against people like him and just to explain to the listener this is a guy that you met when you were how old 17 I was 16 and he was 29 yes and um, he lived in North London and you lived in Brixton and he yes. would he, ne he never wined and dined you he would just pick you up from your home, take him, take you back to his place and you'd watch TV together. And basically he contained you. And then one day he abused you uh, physically. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to be really honest here. I didn't quite tell the whole story because, you know, so I talked about that one incident and how that influence reflected whatever, but there was a much deeper and darker story to it. Um, you know, like we, <clears throat> I never, I was never wined and dined because he just took me back to the house and just had his wicked way, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so those were my first kind of experiences with men with the opposite sex um, and sexually those were my first experiences and it was all negative. Um, so the whole situation, I mean, I didn't want to get into the whole this and this and this because to me, there's a lot to talk about. And so I picked out one example and one song and, and, and kind of we linked it to that and told that story. Um, 
is effective enough, you know, and, and it made the point enough. Um, and, and it was about the fact that I really felt that, and I had a really amazing friend called Susan Okokenu, um, who was older than me and she had a child and she was the one where I talked in the book. She sadly died of, of lung cancer, actually, which was mm. very sad, but she was the one that said to me, you know, you don't have to just say yes and you don't have to take it and you can do something about it and you don't have to just jump in this car every time he tells you to. Um, and that just spun around in my head and it took a long time before that really registered. Um, um, and, and it's because I was just a very shy, quiet Christian girl um, who didn't know how to say no to men because I thought I was being rude and I thought I was being um, arrogant by saying no. Um, and that was a very vital thing that I learned. Um, and that changed my whole being, my whole philosophy and my whole personality, um, turning around and actually saying no and getting out of that relationship. After that, I thought, well, if I can do that and I can get out of that relationship and I can get out of that situation, that means that I'm capable of doing other things in my life and I'm capable of telling other people no and I'm capable of much more than I, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm capable of much more than I thought I was going to be capable of. And so that was a whole turning block. I've only, you're the first person I've told that to actually. That's crazy. Wow. Well, yeah. I, I think those, uh, but those stories that you share, they're so important because you don't know whose ear that's going to fall into and how that might help them yeah. to find their yeah. own crossroads and turn left instead of right or, or, or turn into the right direction because it seems, it seems crazy looking back now that you didn't have the impetus to say no because you felt it was rude. But that's how you felt at that time. That was a genuine, yeah. that was an authentic reaction because of your upbringing. I mean, I was, I, because of my upbringing and also because I was a very shy, quiet 16 year old. I was more like a 12 year old, to be honest, at 16. I mean, you talk about 16 year olds now and I love the fact they are so much more empowered. They are stronger. They are 16 year olds now. I'm just in awe of how amazing these kids are. So you, you, you refer to yourself as being this very um, subservient, eager to please, very shy Christian girl. Um, but actually at 15, you had a job on British Homestalls on Oxford Street where you went in and you spoke up and you affected change. Would you mind revisiting that for me? Because I, I love this story. You know, I was, I, I think as a child, apartheid really horrified me. I mean, I, for some reason I saw it in the news and I just saw these little black kids being shot at and killed and that as a child that really really affected me and so it was just part of my consciousness from about 10 9 10 years on and i remember being in british home stores they had all of these i was in the, um, the interior design department and then i was basically became um head of the interior design department and I remember looking at these labels every week, and there was South Africa this and South Africa that, and I knew there was apartheid. There was a very and there was a very big boycott happening at the time, which is what um, South African black people would ask everybody to do. And it just irritated me. And then I was talking to a friend, and one day I just said, "You know, why are we selling South African goods when these kids are being killed and all this stuff is going on? It's just so wrong." And I could not understand how anyone else couldn't see it as so mm. intrinsically basic just horrendous, horrific, horrific thing. So I thought, I'm just gonna go and talk to the manager. So I complained to the person who was above me and she um, kind of just looked at me in horror. And um, the next week I said, well, what are we gonna do about it? She said, oh, I think you should go and talk to the management. And so I remember I kind of went up the chain until I got to some, one of the big bosses. And I just sat down and said, oh, you know, I just got a request. You know, I think it'd be really good if we didn't sell South Africa goods and join the boycott because you have so many black people working here. Um, and we, a lot of people I've spoken to really identify with it. And he just kind of looked at me and was very kind of like, oh, okay. And I thought to myself at 15, I thought, you know, if someone just says it to them, explains it to them, maybe they'll just change it. Because, you know, in my 15-year-old head, I thought, well, somebody came to me, that's what I would do. And so I went back on down to the floor and they just basically moved me to another part, another department where I didn't have to handle South African goods. And then from then on, it was just strained relationship. They were very wary of me. Um, and I guess they just earmarked to me as a troublemaker. So after that, it just became not as much fun to work there anymore. Um, and I guess that was a kind of a learning curve for me because I just thought, mm, it's not, it's just not that easy, is it? It's not that it's easy. Not
This really takes me nicely to my first question. What I've done is I've tried to, having read your book, craft out three questions that I hope will enable us to unpack who you are. Um, And I wanted to talk about engineering change because you have, on so many occasions, become the change you want to see. So I want to know, what battles are you most proud of fighting? And what advice can you give to others based on your own experiences when it comes to affecting change and waging what some people fear are difficult conversations? I think um, have the conversation and have the discussions because that formulates your viewpoint. I think we're in a society, especially social media, where it's actually very difficult to have any kind of conversation where you may say something wrong. I did an interview, I think, with Radio London yesterday, and they said, who's your favourite fictional character? And I said, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and I was like, afterwards, I was like, oh my God, why did you say Jack the Ripper? I mean, that's how does that in any shape or form answer that bloody question? Um, but my point being that, you know, off the cuff in my head, because I've been on the Ripper tours and I think, think it's a fascinating, a fascinating time of British history, and the whole, you know, who was it, the mystery of it. It, I just thought I just thought it was one of my favourite fiction, well, not fiction, but my favourite things to think about in central, in London, in East London. It's not my favourite fiction or character, but the, the point is, in my, I just came out and, and I could now be judged really badly. You know, Skin thinks that Jack the Ripper was an amazing fictional guy. You know, it just makes me look stupid. And I think that's kind of the society that we're in now is that you're not allowed to get things wrong and make mistakes and be stupid because you can be counseled for it and all these bad things can happen for it. And so what that does, that instigates a whole fearful mentality where you're just not afraid to be honest and, and, and to be yourself because you don't want to be destroyed. And therefore, I think there's a lack of formulations of ideas and discussion of ideas mm. and, and getting to that point because, you know, um, in lots of politics, I didn't. I mean, when it came to trans politics, I didn't get there. It took me a minute to get there to understand it. And once I understood the issues, I was like, right, there you go. But it was kind of alien to me until I sat down and worked through it and had my discussions with my friends and whatever. I'm not going to have that discussion online because people think I'm transphobic, which I'm not. But it's the getting there, the journey of formulating your opinion is really, really, really important. And if you don't have the chance to do that, if you just have to choose straight away which side you're on, um, I actually think that's going to be worse for kids in the future. And so my um, to answer your question, I think that, you know, have those discussions with your friends, have those discussions with your family, have them offline. Save yourself. Yeah. <laughs> have them have them offline. Save yourself. Get there with people that you trust and have those discussions with people that you trust. Don't do it online. Don't, you know, do it in front of people because I think that it's just a very dangerous thing out there. Um, I would also say that it's important to, um, you know, I said it before, be the first. You don't have to have somebody like me being a trailblazer or being an inspiration even or any of those things. You can be the first one to do it. And I think this generation has the opportunity to do things in a completely different way because they have so much technology and themselves information at their hands. So the, the internet and social media, it can kill you, but it can also help you. It's about how you use it. You know, if you're a good pure person, a good human, you can use it for good and you can ignore the negatives and you can try and stay away from all the things that are going to destroy you and concentrate on using it for good and using it in a way that's going to help you. Um, and so that's the other thing I think. Um, especially somebody like me, I didn't have those examples. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do it. Um, I tend to say yes to things and work out how I'm going to do them afterwards. That's another thing that I do. <laughs> and I say to kids, just say yes, say yes. And then jump into the pit and see if you can climb yourself out. Because if you, if you, you may not, you may not be able to call yourself out in the best way, i.e. the masked singer, but <laughs> you know, in doing it, you can actually learn a lot and you actually can learn a bunch of other things about yourself that you actually didn't know. Um, and don't be afraid to, it's obvious one, don't be afraid to make mistakes, you know, put your, just say yes, do it, jump into the pit. But but people are afraid of all of the things that you've just touched upon. Cancel culture is, is terrifying to me. It's terrifying, yeah. It, it, oh, genuinely, it terrifies me because we have to be afforded the opportunity to change our mind and yeah. to learn without being annihilated in the process. I know. Because that is the evolution of, of our our growth as human beings. And we never stop growing. Just because you're like, you hit 18 and you're an adult, your views have to keep evolving, surely. Yeah. 
And they have to keep evolving. And I have so many viewpoints that took me a second to get there. And then I had so many viewpoints that I just felt it straight away. It was just in my heart and soul. I just knew exactly how I felt on such and such an issue. And then other issues were really alien to me. And I just didn't quite get it. I didn't shut it down. I didn't say, don't believe in it, whatever. I just need to do research and learn a bit more for myself, you know. Um, and I just think now I would say to kids, do all of that offline. You know, learn all the stuff, but don't be too quick mm. to comment. Um, because I do think it's a scary world out there. Um, and I would hate to see all these kids destroyed. I talk about it in the book. I talk about it in a musical way. You know, don't be too quick to put your first ideas of your first musical things online. Because if somebody destroys them, it's very hard to pick yourself up and keep going. It's one of the things, you know, the, the abusive situations I've been in and the scary f situations I've been in has taught me. It's like, you know what? I didn't die. You know, I may have messed up, may have fucked up, may have done a lot of things that ugh, I look back on it now. I'm like, oh, my God, thank God there was no social media back in those days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think it's because our society is very judgmental. and Our society doesn't value mistakes. There's the, I don't know if you read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and yeah. he's done a few amazing books. But one of the things that he was talking about is the idea of failure. Um, and there's this idea that the, the reason why it's safe to cross, to be on a plane and cross the road is because when planes go down, there's a whole process that kicks in. Why did that plane go down? Let's find out why. We don't need to know. It's not about blaming, blaming, blaming. It's like, how did that plane go? But, and that's the mentality of, of um, the aeronautical, aeronautical um, organization and industry. Why did that plane go down? We can't make that happen again. Well, you have the National Health Service. When somebody dies or something like that, everyone's like, who, whose fault is it? Who's who, who did it? Whose fault is it? Whose yeah. fault is it? And so you have a mentality of, of, of um, doctors and surgeons and nurses saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, nothing. They're more concerned rather than finding out what went wrong, they're more concerned to save in their own skin because they will be crucified if, if people find out that they've made a mistake. Um, and those are the two different things. And I, so I remember reading that book a long time ago and I was thinking to myself, that's so true. Um, I'm just going to do the scariest things. Like The Masked Singer was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my whole life. Was and you it? Think, Why? Because it's about credibility. I really value my credibility and I really value not looking stupid and I really value people not laughing at me. Um, and those were the things that I thought are the most things that worried me the most. And that's why I did it because I was scared about people laughing. I was scared about my credibility. I was scared about how I'm going to be perceived by my peers and my other rock musicians. And that's why I did it. And you know, the lesson I learned from it is that everybody loved it. I shouldn't have worried. What I should have been worried about is making sure I sang the songs really well and picking great songs for myself. That's what I should have been worried about. I was worried about credibility and being cool when I should have been worried about singing. And so that was a massive lesson learned. I, lesson I learned. And, uh, and I love the program. It's a great program to be. But at this age of 50, 53 years old, that's a lesson I needed to learn. Don't sh coolness is not something that people give you. It's something that, that you decide you have on yourself. Yeah, um, it's, it's your, your own currency. It's your own currency. And nobody it can really give it to you or take it away. And also all of those things that were prohibiting you from, from diving into an experience like that were really fundamentally just vanity, which is ego. Exactly, vanity and ego. Exactly, and trying to be cool and, and being perceived as being uncool. Now, I feel very cool, you know. You and are very cool. I feel very cool. But what does that mean? I should do, I want to do a documentary on that. What does that really mean? I mean, who defines it? Whatever. It's just like, it's yeah, all what's about the value of cool. What's, what, and, and what situations are cool? And my band has never been perceived as cool, depending on who you talk about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This brings me beautifully to my next question. We've touched on cancel culture, and I wanted to bring in underneath that algorithms, algorithms that feed you more of the same by way of views and beliefs that you already uphold, kind of an echo chamber. And in the face of all of that, when did you last change your mind about something really fundamental? Um, when was the last time I changed my life about something fundamental? I think it was the whole issue of, um, I don't know, let me think about this before I say, see? I gotta think it's about a big it. question, right? Yeah. It's a really big question. Back in the day, and this is a few years ago, when the whole idea of trans people um, and sport came across, you know, I think in my head, I was like, yeah, but you know, that's quite, you know, I can see why they would be upset because yeah, you know, if you've got someone who's, physically a man and then they are now female and blah 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 and you know and I think that at first I was just like yeah I can see and now I've you know with ed- getting education do my research I think actually that's just a load of bollocks you know my viewpoint I had back in the day was just a load of bollocks because bollocks because I know a lot more about it you know and I know a lot more about what it means when someone um changes their gender and I think it's a very complicated thing because it's probably, out of many subjects, it's probably the topic that changes the most. And you have these kids that are like right in the front of it and there's like a whiplash, they're straight there, they know exactly what whatever and what to say, whatever. And I think for the rest of it, it gets, takes us a bit of time to get to get there. And, and I feel like I really fundamental changed my views um, because I did my research and I learned and I listened to what everybody else was saying about it. And and you, this is it, right? It's information is power. Yeah. And so when somebody first asks you without all of that wealth of information swimming around between your ears, what you think about something, you give a very top line view, which is, well, no, I can see what they're saying. Yeah, but actually, and again, it's, it's a digital phenomenon in so many ways. Because we can't we can't have an opinion in 140 characters. Some also, things deserve a bigger conversation. And then, you know, the thing is, I was really wrong. I was totally wrong about that. And I disagreed with my early thoughts about it. And uh, and there were viewpoints that I kind of stood up for and demanded. You know, I wasn't doing, um, what's her name from, uh, who wrote Harry Potter? What's her name? J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I wasn't J.K. Rowling about it. I was like, I wasn't, you know, getting my opinion and I've said it, so I'm just going to keep sticking to it, even though I know I'm probably wrong or whatever. You know, I think you have to be able to get information and just get it right. And I think it's important to get it right. And I think it's, um, uh, I think it's important to be wrong and to be a fail yourself and to be kind of not happy about those early opinions that you maybe it wasn't even opinions, like the formulation of it. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people feel like that because they just haven't, they're just not there yet, you know, and also there's a lot of kind of telling people what they should think rather than like explaining something, because I think there's a lot less information about how the change actually occurs. People don't really know how you go from one gender to another. And I don't know all the details of it and what people feel like, because that story is just not out there. All that's out there is a shock story about trans mm. people want this and trans people want that. And now it's non-binary and there's different genders. You know, all this stuff is just thrown at you to upset you and to make you kind of hate the topic and hate those people. There's so much negativity out and very, very, very little information. And I think if people had a lot more information, then they'd be able to be empathetic and see a different broader point of view. But all you're getting is a shock value of like, oh, they think this now and they think that now. And it's really like you're saying, you know, the algorithm bubble where you are just having 
um, your own opinion fed back at you like a horrible, ridiculous echo chamber. I mean, I've always been someone who I have all of the different news, um, you know, on Instagram and Twitter. I read them all. You know, I read all of the kind of ones I don't like and all the ones I do like because I like to see what everybody else is um, mm. thinking. And I think in, in recent years, it's so polarized that sometimes I can't even read that because I'm like, God, that's so far away from what I think. And to me, that's just so racist <laughs> and yeah. so homophobic now that I can't even, you know, I think this is just, whereas you kind of used to kind of think to yourself, mm, I don't really agree with that, but I can understand why you would think that, but I don't really get it. Now it's just like, what are you talking about? What well, it's the extremities. It's just so opposite now. And I think that that's what happens when it came to uh, issues to do with trans people is that the viewpoints are just so outrageous and the information fed to us is just so wrong and outrageous and misinterpreted and misinformed. That's why a lot of people don't understand what's happening, what the issues are. And you know what gets lost in all of that is the humanization of yeah. a story. So when you, I have a very good friend who has transitioned. She is one of the bravest people I know. Yeah. Because every time she walks into a room, every time we go into a meeting together and we work together, she's judged in a way that I will never be able to understand. She has to win every room that she walks into. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exhausting. And that you've got to remember that's the most important point about it it's just kind of like we're just stopping someone because of our negative because of the we're uneducated because of our ignorance we're stopping someone of just being themselves and at the end of the day what does it matter how is it really going to affect our lives you know it's not going to make it's not it changes nothing it changes nothing about i want what i want to do and how i want to do it you mm. know it doesn't really affect everybody else it just affects them so it's this whole thing of like because we're uncomfortable because we're vulnerable because we don't know our shit, we're just gonna heap all of that onto them and make it their problem Instead, actually, it's our problem. Yeah. And I felt that in the early days of being a singer um, and being a rock singer and leading a front, ba a front band, uh, being a lead singer of a band, you know, there was a lot of, like, people being uncomfortable with me because of their racism or their homophobic or they're just not even put a word to it. They just don't know what to do with me. And so they would say negative things to me and not understand me and tell me, you know, I was singing the music of the impressions. I'm singing white people's music and all that kind of stuff. And my viewpoint was just kind of, I was just like, sure what? It's not my problem. It's your problem. Yeah. Fix yourself. You know, because I can't change what I look like. I can't change all that stuff. You know, it's just your issues and your problems. It's a very naive way to deal with it. But it was a way that meant that I didn't have to carry their weight of all of their stuff on my shoulders. Mm. I just was just handing, it's like a boulder. And I just handed the boulder back to them and said, you carry that, you fix yourself, you sort yourself out. Yeah. And I think that's the same kind of idea of like, you know, yeah, she's got to win every room she walks into. So every room, she, room that she walks into, she's got to deal with other people's issues because they haven't sorted themselves out. Um, but I think that we just got to remember to have the empathy gene. You know, we've got to keep the empathy gene and we've got to keep the idea of putting ourselves in other people's shoes and imagining what that would feel like. Um, and I think that we're really losing that empathy gene and we're losing that idea and that ability to, you know, just, well, imagine if it was you, imagine it was your brother or sister, imagine that mm. was your, you know, your child or whatever. Imagine how you would feel then. Um, you know, I mean, they're about to have a massive row about abortion rights. You know, imagine if it was your child that was raped by someone and then forced to have the child, yeah. um, you know, at 13 or something, you know, which changes your whole life. Um, and so I just think that we have to just remember to think like that and remember to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Okay, time for my last question. This one's much lighter and brighter, I promise. I wanted to talk to you about Nirvana. Nirvana is, is a higher happiness, a place of total contentment. And I wondered, what is your Nirvana? Is it a place? Is it a moment in time? Tell me all. I think, you know, I think um, being in lockdown, this is a question that's actually come back to me a few times. You know, I think being in lockdown has given, once you did all those little jobs that you didn't want to do in the last 10 years, and once you've done all this <laughs> and done all that, you know, I mean, for the first three re weeks, I just sat in the chair with my other half and watched Netflix and ate popcorn. And then after a few weeks, you're like, God, if this continues, what if this lasts for another 
couple of years. And so for me, I think it's a really wonderful question. Um, and I think it's a question that we've all been asking ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. that actually it's a lot simpler than you want it to be. It's a lot simpler than you think it is. I mean, for me, what I've really enjoyed is just the tiny, simple things that we've been doing. I'm really enjoying cooking with my other half, you know, like she's an amazing cook and I've, we've been cooking together. We bought a barbecue in Ibiza and we were just cooking. I cooked steak for the first time in my life because um, I was a vegetarian for years and a vegan and I never actually would ever been into a shop and bought a piece of meat in my life i hate butchers shops and and just and so i was like oh, i'm gonna cook a steak you know i'm gonna cook did you eat the steak yeah it was delicious yeah so what, yeah. what changed with that that's a fundamental change of, of, of behavior i mean I, was, I wasn't vegetarian i you know i i'd eat chicken and fish but um i was just kind of like i was just became curious about it and the more we got into cooking different things pies mm. and i was like i'm gonna try cooking a steak um but and the simple things of that and also, also growing things and also just calming down we went got in a I, I got in our car and we drove up and down the island and visited lots of interior design shops and just kind of did all those things and all those trips that we wanted to do and really just talked about what we want to be doing for the next 10 years and where we see our lives during the next two years and then the next five years and the next 10 years and all the things that we want to be doing and having those um really interesting conversations and getting in sync with those conversations because i think we spent a lot of time being in different countries and being super, super busy. And so it was, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it was just kind of plotting and planning. Um, and I think that, you know, I spent a lot of my life and a lot of my career getting to where I've got to. Um, and now I think I'm gonna spend a lot more time balancing that with all the stuff that um, I've got and what do I want to do with it and what's more important, what isn't more important. So that's why I feel now, like I feel like I'm the happiest. I'm going towards my uh, the happiest I've ever been because oh. there's a lot of plots and plans, a lot of things we're gonna do and I'm not gonna just expose them all here, but um, it's quite exciting. The next chapter, next, you know, I'm 53, I've got another 30 years. You know, black people, we live long, so. <laughs> <laughs> Jamaicans live long. So that's uh, <laughs> as my mum said. You know, so what am I going to do for the next thirty years? You know, because I've I've been in a young person's profession, and now I'm fifty three, and so what's what's going to change, and how is that going to look like? So that's my own kind of personal nirvana. One of the things that we love the most is um, getting the wheelbarrow and going into the forest and collecting wood, and then um, bringing that wood down and chopping it all down to make a fire because we collect wood for the fire we buy some wood but we collect wood from the forest that i live in and then we make fires and we go and visit all the fruit trees and eat fruit off the trees and we work out what vegetables we're going to get and all the things that we're going to go do for the garden um and that's just a very kind of otherworldly thing because i love nature and i love being outside and it's because I'm like an urban child from Brixton. You know, I was brought up, you know, in this kind of Brixton urban close environment where there wasn't much greenery apart from Brockwell Park. Yeah, um, you're right. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just something I discovered about myself as I get older that I love um, being outside in nature. And I loved it even more after being inside for four months straight, which I've never done in my whole life. Never, yeah. ever done. And I think most people feel like that. So it really made me how I was, I was so happy about choices that I'd made a long time ago that have put me in the position of being able to tread water. Um, I've, I'm in a well-managed position. I've had a great manager, Lee Johnson for 25, 30 years, 32 years, I think. Um, and so now I'm able, you know, the one thing I did is buy a house in the countryside, you know, so um, I'm able to go there and really kind of see it in a different light, you know, see that lifestyle in a different light. I mean, lifestyle, I think everybody's like, God, we need, to, if we can, we need to get out more. We need to go to the park. We need to buy a house in the countryside. We need to, whatever your circumstances are, you know, we need to get a, a flat with a balcony, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, a flower box, anything. A flower yeah. box, grow things, you know? And I mm -hmm. think that's just, there's simpler things in life that can give you a lot of pleasure. And so that's really become my nirvana is just seeing the joy in the tiny things that I do. And uh, let me ask you this, because you said you've had the house in Ibiza for like 15, 14 years now. Mm -hmm. 
did lockdown and spending time there give you a different uh, perspective on that 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 existence that property and what it and the enrichment that you get from it in terms of your life because have you ever used it in that way yeah. before yeah. Never. I mean, I mean, um, we were in New York for the first uh, four months. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's wonderful um, is that we were great together. We we're absolutely fine. We had we're great friends and we're great everything. And we enjoyed each other's company. Um, but we were just after a while, we really started to hanker for outdoor space. I mean, I go running, but it's different to go running than it is to go and sit in a park. Yeah. Uh, there, have, there was a whole curfew as well because of all the, the demonstrations and stuff. Then that, and then there were fireworks. And so we were just hankering to get to my place in Ibiza simply because we could sit outside and, so one thing we do is we built a, a, a kind of a outside door because my flat, my, 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 my um, place in Ibiza is a lot of land, but very small house. So we bought like, we built like an outdoor pagoda, like a roof so we could sit outside mm. and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it really did. We were there for like a couple of months. Um, and then we were like, God, this is like a much better lifestyle. I mean, mm. Why do we have to go to so many places all of the time? Why do we have to do this? Everything that I need to do, I can do, apart from touring, I can do with internet, you know, with all the def- mm. different forms of technology, with all the different gear. I love gear. I've loved setting up little studios wherever I've been to. And and I just think it's really changed my perspective that actually I'm quite, I could quite happily move back. I, live, I lived in Ibiza for a couple of years when I first um, bought the house. Uh, two to three years and then I went on tour and then I've never done that again um, and we were really thinking um, this is a really good idea to spend a lot more time here and to be based there because it's a real luxury Um I was really lucky it didn't cost me that much money when I bought it you know and now it's worth a lot more obviously but um, mm. that's just timing so it's a tiny place but with a lot of land um, and uh, we were like, we, we just kept coming up with ideas. We could do this, we could do that, we could do this, we could do that. And so that's become our um, safe haven and our own slice of Nevada, I would say. It's great. Great that you've discovered that. So it's not standing in front of 20,000 people necessarily. It's that wheelbarrow moment of collecting wood for tonight's fire and planning out what you're going to eat. Thank you. It really is, ing- and, and growing it, <laughs> yeah. becoming, becoming a bit more. So I used to grow lots of vegetables, but then there was never anyone around to eat them. <laughs> yeah, and they just go off. <laughs> you know, my neighbours would come into the house and just like eat all my vegetables and stuff like that, which I was extremely happy about. But it's a lot. Of, it's, it's you know, it's a lot of toil to grow vegetables. So if you don't, if you're not around to eat them, what's the point? Yeah. Um, but I think there's a self sufficiency. It's kind of like we're talking about, you know. Um, DIY stuff, software, um, gear, setting up tiny studios so we can do what we want. And also this sense of setting up food and setting up, you know, we can do so much more. We don't have to have everything handed to us on the plate as Mm. people. We can actually physically do a lot more to help ourselves out, to sort ourselves out. And it's, that's better for the planet as well. Absolutely. Self-sustaining. We've learned, I think we've all learned a lot and some of us won't realize what we've learned for a long time to come, but I think we'll see it in the way that we change how we live. Yeah, and do you know what I realised? Um, and uh, my girlfriend realised it's a lot more fiancé, I should say, fiancé. Yeah, my you got fiancé. engaged just before lockdown. Yeah. Congratulations. She's my fiancina quarantina. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I realised, you know, we don't have to get our nails done every two weeks and we can grow a bit of hair, you know, the, the, the legs don't have to get shaved and their hair doesn't have to be done. There's all these things that we think that we have to do because we're doing it for other people and not ourselves half the time. Um, and, you know, we love fashion and we love clothes, and um, but we haven't done any of that. And it's interesting to see how important that is and how important that isn't. And, you know, the thing I really realise is it's really important to get up and get dressed and not live in the pyjamas. That's a mental, totally. that's bad for your mental health. Don't wear pyjamas all day. Yeah, that was, the first three weeks, we literally stayed in pyjamas for about four weeks, four, three, four weeks. And afterwards, like, no, 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 we don't have to get dressed up, dressed up, but we do need to put on proper clothes. <laughs> yeah, just, just a clean tracksuit will be fine. <laughs> right? And a sports bra. And that's been it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I've, I've taken so much of your time today and I could talk to you forever. And I, I really would implore people, go out and read this book and then pass it to your friends. And Christmas is coming and buy it for your friends because it's a great story and it will inspire you and educate you and it will 
totally entertain you because it's written with no filter. I loved it from from page one to the very very last page. I don't. I I I I should have more of a filter that I you know. I, I don't. I, don't. Yeah, I, sh- I should have much more theatre. Um, thank you so much. Good luck with um, returning to some kind of live touring life. I know that there's tour dates that have been rescheduled for next year. Um, for all of us, I hope that we get there. I really do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. I think it might be too soon. But, you know, let's... I think that humans need that to be around other humans to actually totally. be better, to be better humans. So... And I need. I think we need the release of gigs. We need the release of going to nightclubs and partying um, and having a drink. That's part of human nature and, and makes us better humans. So I really hope it comes back. I really do. And in the meantime, people can catch you on Sunday nights on Absolute Radio. Um, what time does your show start and when does it start? 10 to 11. It starts this Sunday. Uh, Sunday. Uh, 10 to 12. It starts this Sunday, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you want to read more about the incredible life and times of Skin, then read her memoir. It's available to buy now called It Takes Blood and Guts, and it's a damn good read. That's it from us for this week. As always, the show's produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. Editing is by Callum Goddard-Mucklow, and music is provided by Andy Bell, whose back catalogue with Oasis, Ride, and his solo material is available on iTunes and Spotify. We'll be back next week. Until then, please stay safe and try and do as we always do and drink responsibly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.